Section 41 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 1, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 20. Tabriz to Tehran. The wheeling improves in the afternoon, and alongside my road runs a bit of civilization in the shape of the splendid iron poles of the Indo-European Telegraph Company. Half a dozen times this afternoon I become the imaginary enemy of a couple of cavalrymen travelling in the same direction as myself. They swoop down upon me from the rear at a charging gallop valiantly whooping and brandishing their martini henrys when they arrive within a few yards of my rear wheel they swerve off on either side and rein their fiery chargers up allowing me to forge ahead they amuse themselves by repeating this interesting performance over and over again being usually a good rider the dash and courage of the persian cavalrymen is something extraordinary in time of peace. No more brilliant and intrepid cavalry charge on a small scale could be well imagined than I have witnessed several times this afternoon. But upon the outbreak of serious hostilities, the average warrior in the Shah's service suddenly becomes filled with a wild pathetic yearning after the peaceful and honourable calling of a Katirji an uncontrollable desire to become a humble, contented tiller of the soil, or handyman about a chai khan, anything, in fact, of a strictly peaceful character. Were I a hostile trooper with a red jacket, and a general warlike appearance, and the bicycle a machine-gun, though our whooping, charging cavalrymen were twenty instead of two, they would charge only once and that would be with their horses' crimson-dyed tails streaming in the breeze toward me. The Shah's soldiers are gentle, unwarlike creatures at heart. There are probably no soldiers in the whole world that would acquit themselves less creditably in a pitched battle. They are, nevertheless, not without certain soldierly qualities, well adapted to their country, the cavalrymen are very good riders, and although the infantry does not present a very encouraging appearance on the parade-ground, they would meander across five hundred miles of country on half-rations of blotting-paper ekmek without any vigorous remonstrance, and wait uncomplainingly for their pay until the middle of next year. About five o'clock I arrive at Haji Aga, a large village forty miles from Tabriz, here, as soon as it is ascertained that I intend remaining overnight, I am actually beset by rival Kanjis, who commence jabbering and gesticulating about the merits of their respective establishments, like hotel runners in the United States. Of course, they are several degrees less rude and boisterous, and more considerate of one's personal inclinations than their prototypes in America but they furnish yet another proof that there is nothing new under the sun. Haji Aga is a village of Sayuds, 
or descendants of the prophets, these and the mullahs being the most bigoted class in Persia. When I drop into the Chai Khan for a glass or two of tea, the sanctimonious old joker with henna-tinted beard and fingernails, presiding over the samovar, rolls up his eyes in holy horror at the thoughts of waiting upon an unhallowed Ferengi, and it requires considerable pressure from the younger and less fanatical men to overcome his disinclination. He probably breaks the glass I drank from after my departure. About dusk, the Valiat and his courtiers arrive on horseback from Tabriz. The prince immediately seeks my quarters at the Khan, and after examining the bicycle, wants me to take it out and ride. It is getting rather dark, however, so I put him off till morning. He remains and smokes cigarettes with me for half an hour, and then retires to the residence of the local Khan for the night. The prince seems an amiable, easy-going sort of a person. While in my company, his countenance is wreathed in a pleasant smile continually, and I fancy he habitually wears that same expression. His youthful courtiers seem frivolous young bloods, putting in most of the half-hour in showing me their accomplishments in the way of making floating rings of their cigarette smoke. Later in the evening I stroll around to the Chai Khan again. It is the gossiping place of the village, and I find our sanctimonious Sayuds indulging in uncomplimentary comments regarding the Valiat's conduct in hobnobbing with the Ferengi. How bigoted these Persians are, and yet how utterly destitute of principle and moral character. In the morning, the prince sends me an invitation to come and drink tea with them before starting out. He bears the same perennial smile as yesterday evening. Although he is generally understood to be completely under the influence of the fanatical and bigoted Sayuds and Molas, who are strictly opposed to the Ferengi and the Ferengi's idea of progress and civilization, he seems withal an amiable, well-disposed young man, whom one could scarce help liking personally, amid feeling sorry at the troubles in store for him ahead. He has an elder brother, the Zil-es-Sultan, now governor of the southern provinces. But not being the son of a royal princess, the Shah has nominated Amir i Nazan as his successor to the throne. The Zil es Sultan, although of a somewhat cruel disposition, has proved himself a far more capable and energetic person than the Valiat, and makes no secret of the fact that he intends disputing the succession with his brother, by force of arms if necessary, at the Shah's demise. He has, so at least it is currently reported, had his sword-blade engraved with the grim inscription, This is for the Valiat's head, and has jocularly notified his inoffensive brother of the fact. The zeal as sultan belongs to the party of progress, wrecks little of the opinions of priests and fanatics, 
is fond of Englishmen and European improvements, and keeps a kennel of English bulldogs. Should he become Shah of Persia, Baron Reuter's grand scheme of railways and commercial regeneration, which was foiled by the fanaticism of the Sayuds and Mollahs soon after the Shah's visit to England, may yet come to something, and the railroad rails now rusting in the swamps of the Caspian Littoral may, after all, form part of a railway between the seaboard and the capital. The road for a short distance east of Haji Aga is splendid wheeling, and the prince and his courtiers accompany me for some two miles, finding much amusement in racing with me whenever the road permits of spurting. The country now develops into undulating upland, uncultivated and stone-strewn, except where an occasional stream affording irrigating facilities has rendered possible the permanent maintenance of a mud village and a circumscribed area of wheat-fields, melon-gardens, and vineyards. No sooner does one find himself launched upon the comparatively well-travelled post-route than a difference becomes manifest in the character of the people. Commercially speaking, the Persian is considerably more of a Jew than the Jew himself, and along a route frequented by travellers, the person possessing some little knowledge of the thievish ways of the country and of current prices, besides having plenty of small change, finds these advantages a matter for congratulation almost every hour of the day. The proprietor of a wretched little mud hovel, solemnly presiding over a few thin sheets of bread, a jar of rancid hirsute butter, and a dozen half-ripe melons, affects a glum, sorrowful expression to think that he should happen to be without small change, and consequently obliged to accept the Hamsheri's fifty-kopeck piece for provisions of one-tenth the value. But the mysterious frequency of this same state of affairs, and accompanying sorrowful expression, taken in connection with the actual plenitude of small change in Persia, awaken suspicions even in the mind of the most confiding and uninitiated person. A peculiar system of commercial mendicancy obtains among the proprietors of melon and cucumber gardens alongside the road of this particular part of the country. Observing a likely-looking traveller approaching, they come running to him with a melon or cucumber that they know to be utterly worthless and beg the traveller to accept it as a present. Delighted, perhaps, with their apparent simple-hearted hospitality, and moreover sufficiently thirsty to appreciate the gift of a melon, the unsuspecting wayfarer tenders the crafty proprietor of the garden a suitable present of money in return, and accepts the proffered gift. Upon cutting it open, he finds the melon unfit for anything, and it gradually dawns upon him that he has just grown a trifle wiser concerning the inbred cunningness and utter dishonesty of the Persians than he was before. Ere the day is ended, the same game will probably be attempted a dozen times. In addition to these artful customers, 
one occasionally comes across small colonies of lepers, who, being compelled to isolate themselves from their fellows, have taken up their abode in rude hovels or caves by the roadside, and sally forth in all their hideousness to beset the traveller with piteous cries for assistance. Some of these poor lepers are loathsome in appearance to the last degree. Their scanty coverings of rags and tatters conceals nothing of the ravages of their dread disease. Some sit at the entrance to their hovels, stretching out their hands and piteously appealing for alms. Others drop down exhausted in the road while endeavouring to run and overtake the passer-by. There is nothing deceptive about these wretched outcasts. Their condition is only too glaringly apparent. Towards sundown, I arrive at Turkomanchai, a large village where in 1828 was drawn up the treaty of peace between Persia and Russia, which transferred the remaining Persian territory of the Caucasus into the capacious maw of the northern bear. It is currently reported that after depriving the Persians of their rights to the navigation of the Caspian Sea, the Tsar coolly gave his amiable friend, the Shah, a practical lesson concerning the irony of fortune by presenting him with a yacht. Seeking the guidance of a native to the caravanserai, this quick-witted individual leads the way through tortuous alleyways to the other end of the village and pilots me to the camp of a tea caravan, pitched on the outskirts. Thinking I had requested to be guided to a caravan, the caravan men direct me to the Shaparkana, where accommodations of the usual rude nature are provided. Sending into the village for eggs, sugar, and tea, the Shaparkana keeper and the stablemen produce a battered samovar, and after frying my supper they prepare tea. They are poor, ragged fellows, but they seem light-hearted and contented. The siren song of the steaming samovar seems to awaken in their semi-civilized breasts a sympathetic response, and they fall to singing and making merry over tiny glasses of sweetened tea, quite as naturally as sailors in a seaport groggery or Germans over a keg of lager. Jolly, happy-go-lucky fellows, though they outwardly appear. They prove no exception, however, to the general run of their countrymen in the manner of petty dishonesty. Though I gave them money enough to purchase twice the quantity of provisions they brought back, besides promising them the customary small present before leaving, in the morning they make a further attempt on my purse under pretense of purchasing more butter to cook the remainder of the eggs. These are trifling matters to discuss, but they serve to show the wide difference between the character of the peasant classes in Persia and Turkey. The Shaparkana usually consists of a walled enclosure containing stabling for a large number of horses and quarters for the stablemen and station-keeper. The quickest mode of travelling in Persia is by Shapar, or, in other words, on horseback, obtaining fresh horses at each Shaparkana. 
The country east of Turkomanchai consists of rough, uninteresting upland, with nothing to vary the monotony of the journey. Until noon, when after wheeling five farsaks, I reach the town of Miana, celebrated throughout the Shah's dominions for a certain poisonous bug which inhabits the mud walls of the houses and is reputed to bite the inhabitants while they are sleeping. The bite is said to produce violent and prolonged fever and to be even dangerous to life. It is customary to warn travellers against remaining overnight at Miana, and of course I have not by any means been forgotten. Like most of these alleged dreadful things, it is found, upon close investigation, to be a big bogey with just sufficient truthfulness about it to play upon the imaginative minds of the people. The Miana bugbear would, I think, be a more appropriate name than Miana bug. The people here seem inclined to be rather rowdyish in their reception of a Ferengi without an escort. While trundling through the bazaar toward the telegraph station, I become the unhappy target for covertly thrown melon rinds and other unwelcome missiles for which there appears no remedy except the friendly shelter of the station. This is just outside the town, and before the gate is reached, stones are exchanged for melon rinds, but fortunately without any serious damage being done. Mr. F., a young German operator, has charge of the control station here, and welcomes me most cordially to share his comfortable quarters, urging me to remain with him several days. I gladly accept his hospitality till tomorrow morning. Mr. F. has a brother who has recently become a Mussulman and married a couple of Persian wives. He is also residing temporarily at Miana. He soon comes around to the telegraph station and turns out to be a wild, harem-scarum sort of person who regards his transformation into a Mussulman and the setting up of a harem of his own as anything but a serious affair. As a reward for embracing the Mohammedan religion and becoming a Persian subject, the Shah has given him a sum of money and a position in the Tabriz Mint, besides bestowing upon him the sounding title of Mirza Abdul Karim Khan. It seems that inducements of a like substantial nature are held out to any Ferengi of known respectability who formally embraces the Shiite branch of the Mohammedan religion and becomes a Persian subject. A rare chance for chronic ne'er-do-wells among ourselves, one would think. This novel and festive convert to Islam readily gives me a mental peep behind the scenes of Persian domestic life and would unhesitatingly have granted me a peep in person had such a thing been possible. Imagine the ordinary costume of an opera bouffe artist, shorn of all regard for the difference between real indecency and the suggestiveness of indelicacy permissible behind the footlights, and we have the everyday costume of the Persian harem. 
In the dreamy eventide, the lord of the harem usually betakes himself to that characteristic institution of the East, and proceeds to drive dull care away by smoking the kalyan and watching an exhibition of the terpsichorean talent of his wives or slaves. This does not consist of dancing, such as we are accustomed to understand the art, but of grateful posturing and bodily contortions, spinning round like a corifi, with hand aloft and snapping their fingers or clashing tiny brass cymbals, standing with feet motionless and wriggling the joints, or bending backward until their loose, flowing tresses touch the ground. Persians able to afford the luxury have their women's apartment walled with mirrors, placed at appropriate angles, so that when enjoying these exhibitions of his wife's abilities, he finds himself not merely in the presence of three or six wives, as the case may be, but surrounded on all sides by scores of airy fairy nymphs, and amid the dreamy fumes and soothing bubble-bubbling of his kalyan, can imagine himself the happy, or one would naturally think unhappy, possessor of a hundred. The effect of this mirror-work arrangement can be better imagined than described. "'You haven't got one of those mirrored rooms, have you?' I inquire, beginning to get a trifle inquisitive and perhaps rather impertinent. You couldn't manage to smuggle a fellow inside, disguised as a Sayyid, or... Nikt, replies Mirza Abdul Karim Khan, laughing. I haven't bothered about a mirror chamber yet, because I only remain here for another month. But if you happen to come to Tabriz any time after I get settled down there, look me up, and I'll hello. Here comes Prince Asa Abdullah to see your velocipede. Fateh Ali Shah, the grandfather of the present monarch, had some seventy-two sons, besides no lack of daughters. As the son of a prince inherits his father's title in Persia, the numerous descendants of Fateh Ali Shah are scattered all over the empire, and royal princes bob serenely up in every town of any consequence in the country. They are frequently found occupying some snug, but not always lucrative post under the government. Prince Asabdullah has learned telegraphy and has charge of the government control station here, drawing a salary considerably less than the agent of the English company's line. The Persian government telegraph line consists of one wire strung on tumble-down wooden poles. It is erected alongside the splendid English line of triple wires and substantial iron poles, and the control stations are built adjacent to the English stations, as though the Persians were rather timid about their own abilities as telegraphists, and preferred to nestle, as it were, under the protecting shadow of the English line. Prince Asabdullah has an elder brother who is governor of Miana, and who comes round to see the bicycle during the afternoon. They both seem pleasant and agreeable fellows. 
when the heat of the day has given place to cooler eventide and the moon comes peeping over the lofty koflan ku mountains nearby to the eastward we proceed to a large fruit garden on the outskirts of the town and sitting on the roof of a building indulge in luscious purple grapes as large as walnuts and pears that melt away in the mouth mirza abdul karim khan plays a german accordion and prince asabdullah sings a persian love song the leafy branches of popular groves are whispering in response to a gentle breeze and playing hide-and-seek across the golden face of the moon and the mountains have assumed a shadowy indistinct appearance it is a scene of transcendental loveliness characteristic of a persian moonlit night afterward we repair to mirza abdul kirim khan's house to smoke the kalyan and drink tea his favorite wife whom he has taught to respond to the purely frangistan name of iozi replenishes and lights the kalyan giving it a few preliminary puffs herself by way of getting it under headway before handing it to her husband and then serves us with glasses of sweetened tea from the samovar in deference to her ferengi brother-in-law and myself iozi has donned a gauzy shroud over the above-mentioned indoor costume of the persian female she is a beautiful dancer says her husband admiringly i wish it were possible for you to see her dance this evening but it isn't iozi herself wouldn't mind but it would be pretty certain to leak out and miana being a rather fanatical place my life wouldn't be worth that much and the khan carelessly snapped his fingers supper is brought up to the telegraph station prince asabdullah is invited and comes round with his servant bearing a number of cucumbers and a bottle of arak the prince being a genuine mohammedan is forbidden by his religion to indulge consequently he consumes the fiery arak in preference to some light and harmless native wine such is the perversity of human nature two princes and a khan are cantering not cantering alongside the bicycle as i pull out eastward from miana they accompany me to the foothills approaching the Koflanku Pass, and wishing me a pleasant journey, turn their horses' heads homeward again. Reaching the pass proper, I find it to be an exceedingly steep trundle, but quite easy climbing compared with a score of mountain passes in Asia Minor, for the surface is reasonably smooth and toward the summit is an ancient stone causeway a new and delightful experience awaits me upon the summit of the pass the view to the westward is a revelation of mountain scenery altogether new and novel in my experience which can now scarcely be called unvaried i seem to be elevated entirely above the surface of the earth and gazing down through transparent ethereal depths upon a scene of ever-changing beauty fleecy cloudlets are floating lazily over the valley far below my position 
producing on the landscape a panoramic scene of constantly changing shadows through the ethery depths so wonderfully transparent the billowy grey foothills the meandering streams fringed with green and miana with its blue domed mosques and emerald gardens present a phantasmagorical appearance as though they themselves were floating about in the lower strata of space and undergoing constant transformation perched on an apparently inaccessible crag to the north is an ancient robber stronghold commanding the pass it is a natural fortress requiring but a few finishing touches by man to render it impregnable in the days when the maintenance of robber strongholds were possible owing to its walls and battlements being chiefly erected by nature the persian peasantry call it the perikazir believing it to have been built by fairies while ascending the eastern slope i surprise a grey lizard almost as large as a rabbit basking in the sunbeams he briskly scuttles off into the rocks upon being disturbed crossing the safid rood on a dilapidated brickwork bridge i cross another range of low hills among which i notice an abundance of mica cropping above the surface and then descend to a broad level plain extending eastward without any lofty elevation as far as eye can reach on this shelterless plain i am overtaken by a furious equinoctial gale it comes howling suddenly from the west obscuring the recently vacated kaflan Koo mountains behind an inky veil filling the air with clouds of dust and for some minutes rendering it necessary to lie down and fairly hang on to the ground to prevent being blown about first it begins to rain then to hail heaven's artillery echoes and reverberates in the koflan Koo mountains and rolls above the plain seeming to shake the hailstones down like fruit from the branches of the clouds and soon i am enveloped in a pelting pitiless downpour of hailstones plenty large enough to make themselves felt wherever they strike to pitch my tent would have been impossible owing to the wind and the suddenness of its appearance in thirty minutes or less it is all over the sun shines out warmly and dissipates the clouds and converts the ground into an evaporator that envelops everything in steam in an hour after it quits raining the road is dry again and across the plain it is for the most part excellent wheeling about four o'clock the considerable village of sercham is reached here as at haji agi i at once become the bone of contention between rival kanjis wanting to secure me for a guest on the supposition that i am going to remain overnight their anxiety is all unnecessary however for away off on the eastern horizon can be observed clusters of familiar black dots that awaken agreeable reflections of the night spent in the kurdish camp between ovajik and koi i remain in sercham long enough to eat a watermelon ride against my will over rough ground to appease the crowd and then pull out toward the Kurdish camps which are evidently situated near my proper course. 
it seems to have rained heavily in the mountains and not rained at all east of sercham for during the next hour i am compelled to disrobe and ford several freshets coursing down ravines over beds that before the storm were inches deep in dust the approaching slopes being still dusty this little diversion causes me to thank fortune that i have been enabled to keep in advance of the regular rainy season which commences a little later striking a cordish camp adjacent to the trail i trundle toward one of the tents before reaching it i am overhauled by a shepherd who hands me a handful of dried peaches from a wallet suspended from his waist the evening air is cool with a suggestion of frostiness and the occupants of the tent are found crouching around a smoking tezek fire they are ragged and of rather unprepossessing appearance but being instinctively hospitable they shuffle around to make me welcome at the fire at first i almost fancy myself mistaken in thinking them cords for there is nothing of the neatness and cleanliness of our late acquaintances about them on the contrary they are almost as repulsive as their sedentary relatives of dele baba but a little questioning removes all doubt of their being cords they are simply an ill-conditioned tribe without any idea whatever of thrift or good management they have evidently been to tabriz or somewhere lately and invested most of the proceeds of the season's shearing in three-year-old dried peaches that are hard enough to rattle like pebbles sacks full of these edibles are scattered all over the tent serving for seats pillows and general utility articles for the youngsters to roll about on jump over and throw around everybody in the camp seems to be chewing these peaches and throwing them about in sheer wantonness because they are plentiful every sack contains finger holes from which one and all help themselves ad libitum in wanton disregard of the future nearly everybody seems to be suffering from ophthalmia which is aggravated by crouching over the densely smoking tezek and one miserable-looking old character is groaning and writhing with the pain of a severe stomach-ache by loafing lazily about the tent all day and chewing these flinty dried peaches this hopeful old joker has well-nigh brought himself to the unhappy condition of the yosemite valley mule who broke into the tent and consumed half a bushel of dried peaches when the hunters returned to camp and were wondering what marauder had visited their tent and stolen their peaches they heard a loud explosion behind the tent hastily going out they discover the remnants of the luckless mule scattered about in all directions of course i am appealed to for a remedy and i am not sorry to have at last come across an applicant for my services as a hakim for whose ailment i can prescribe with some degree of confidence to make assurance doubly sure i give the sufferer a double dose and in the morning have the satisfaction of finding him entirely relieved from his misery 
there seems to be no order or sense of good manners whatever among these people we have bread and half-stewed peaches for supper and while they are cooking ill-mannered youngsters are constantly fishing them from the kettles with weed stalks meeting with no sort of reproof from their elders for so doing when bedtime arrives everybody seizes quilts peach sacks etc and crawls wherever they can for warmth and comfort three men two women and several children occupy the same compartment as myself and gaunt dogs are nosing hungrily about among us about midnight there is a general hullabaloo among the dogs and the clatter of horses hoofs is heard outside the tent the occupants of the tent including myself spring up wondering what all the disturbance is about a group of horsemen are visible in the bright moonlight outside and one of them has dismounted and under the guidance of a shepherd is about entering the tent seeing me spring up and being afraid lest perchance i might misinterpret their intentions and act accordingly he sings out in a soothing voice kardash hamsheri kardash kardash thus assuring me of their peaceful intentions these midnight visitors turn out to be a party of persian travellers from miana from which it would appear they have less fear of the cords here and in Kurdistan near the border. Having somehow found out my whereabouts, they have come to try and persuade me to leave the camp and join their company to Zenjan. Although my own unfavorable impressions of my entertainers are seconded by the visitors' reiterated assurances that these Kurds are bad people, I decline to accompany them knowing the folly of attempting to bicycle over these roads by moonlight in the company of horsemen who would be continually worrying me to ride no matter what the condition of the road after remaining in camp half an hour they take their departure end of section forty one